Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is still the abdominal wall, retroperitoneal, and urological module from the general surgical curriculum, but we're going to focus on urology again this episode. The operation or topics we'll be covering today are a bit of a mixed bag. We're going to be talking a little bit about testicular tumors. We're going to talk about varicoceles, hydroceles, and epididymal cysts. So to start off with, let's talk a little bit about testicular tumors. This topic is actually ginormous. There is so much to know about testicular tumors and it's actually super complicated. But if you have a look at the curriculum, we're not sort of expected to know everything to the level of a urologist or a medical oncologist looking after these tumors. So I'm just going to run through the topic at the level I think that we should know or the level that I learned at least for my exam. So in terms of a bit of introduction, testicular tumors are the second most common cancer in men aged between 18 and 39 years old. It usually occurs in young men between 15 and 35, and it overall has quite a good prognosis with a five-year survival rate around 90%. In terms of presentations, these tumors usually present with painless testicular lump. So often they don't actually have pain, but they can present with pain as well. Typically, patients will describe of a dull pain in the testes or in the lower abdomen. Some of the risk factors for testicular cancer include cryptorchidism, which is undescended testes, Kleinfelter syndrome, which is a chromosomal abnormality resulting in a double XY chromosome, infections such as HIV and mumps, a family history of testicular cancer, and previous radiotherapy. So let's go a little bit into the classification of testicular tumors. Essentially, they can be classified into two main groups. So this is primary tumors of the testes, of which about 95% of them are, And then there's also secondary tumors. So this is lymphoma or metastases from other sites. In terms of the primary tumors, again, you can subclassify these into two main groups, the germ cell tumors and the non-germ cell tumors. The germ cell tumors account for about 90% of the primary tumors of the testes. And these are essentially tumors that come from the primordial germ cells. And these are the cells that give rise to all other tissues and organs. So you often get very mixed tumors. So tumors with lots of different cell types in them. Of the germ cell tumors, there's two main types, the seminomatous tumors and the non-seminomatous tumors. So in terms of the seminomatous tumors or the seminomas, in general, these have a slow growth phenotype. They metastasize late and respond very well to radiotherapy with quite a good prognosis. There's three types of seminomatous tumors, and I remembered these with the acronym CAS, C-A-S, classic, anaplastic, and spermatocytic. And seminomatous 
germ cell tumors of the testes can increase the beta-HCG level. The second type of germ cell tumor of the testes is the non-seminomatous germ cell tumors. And in general, these are less favorable. They have a faster, more aggressive phenotype. They metastasize early and they can have a variable response to treatment. In terms of the different types of non-seminomatous germ cell tumors, this includes mixed, embryonal, teratomas, yolk sac, and choriocarcinomas. And these non-seminomatous germ cell tumors will often increase the tumor markers beta-HCG as well as alpha-fetoprotein. The second group of primary tumors of the testes I mentioned was the non-germ cell tumors. And these are essentially tumors that come from the supporting cells in the testes. So this includes tumors that arise from the Sertoli cells, which are the supportive cells inside the seminiferous tubules, or the Leydig cells, which lie outside of the tubules and secrete sex hormones. So that's Sertoli cell tumors or Leydig cell tumors. So that was a lot of information all in one go. I wrote these out and I swear I looked at it a thousand times before the exam. Um, So just to run through that again one more time. The classification of testicular tumors is that there's primary tumors or secondary tumors. The primary tumors can be split into germ cell tumors, of which the subtypes are seminomatous or non-seminomatous. And then there's the non-germ cell tumors. And the secondary tumors are things like lymphoma or metastases. These are much rarer and they're much more common in older men and usually especially with lymphoma would be bilateral so that would be um, a red flag to think about a secondary tumor of the testes so let's get back to talking about testicular tumors and let's focus a little bit on the workup of these tumors so if a young patient presents with a painless testicular lump The types of investigations you'll do include a blood test, and I mentioned some of those tumor markers that can be raised in testicular tumors. And so the three types of tumor markers that you're going to do are an alpha feeder protein, an AFP, and we mentioned that that goes up in some of those non-seminomatous cancers, the beta-HCG, and that goes up in both seminomatous and non-seminomatous cancers, which come under that group of the germ cell tumors. And then we can also do LDH, which can also go up in some seminomatous and non-seminomatous cancers. The next one to do is imaging. So we will do a ultrasound of the testes, and this is useful to characterize the lesion, look at the extent of the mass, and also is quite good at diagnosing a solid mass, which is going to be most likely a cancer. Some of the things you might see is a heterogeneous, low echogenicity mass within an enlarged testicle. Um, There can be small nodules and also other sort of pictures you might see include a large infiltrating mass that can completely replace the testes. It may have necrosis or calcification within it and often has increased vascularity. 
And it's a good idea to have a look at what a normal testes looks like on ultrasound and Google a few pictures of what a testicular cancer might look like because it's pretty pathognomonic really. So definitely something they could give you in a spot. The key point um, in imaging and staging of testicular cancers is that testicular tumors should not be biopsied. As we mentioned in the last episode, the skin of the scrotum drains to the superficial inguinal nodes, and that's different to the drainage of the testes. The testes drains to the retroperitoneal nodes. So if you biopsy a testicular tumor and you seed it to the skin, then you can give it another pathway to spread. The other interesting thing I came across when looking at the workup or staging of testicular cancer is that imaging staging um, seems to come after orchidectomy. And I had a chat with one of the urologists about this when I was studying for the exam. And they basically said that if there's no other symptoms um, on history and physical examination of any other spread elsewhere, no back pain, systemic symptoms, then you would just go ahead and do a orchidectomy to get the um, subtype of the tumor um, and then go from there. But if there was any suspicious symptoms and you were worried that there might be metastatic disease, then you would proceed first to systemic staging. Um, Some staging pathways say just to do a chest X-ray, but you can also do a CT, chest to abdo pelvis, um, because as we mentioned, the um, main spread is to retroperitoneal nodes. So a chest X-ray isn't really going to give you that information. So briefly to touch on the staging of testicular tumors, I don't know that we need to know the TNM staging in detail, um, but it's interesting to know that the serum tumor markers are considered in the TNM staging for testicular tumors. So it's TNMS, S for serum markers. And that basically correlates with the fact that the higher level um, the tumor marker, the more likely there is to be metastatic disease. And the tumor markers are also um, involved in surveillance of testicular tumors because if the tumor marker doesn't drop to zero, basically, after the orchidectomy, then that's a really sensitive marker that there may be disease elsewhere. Um, Or if a patient's being followed up and the serum markers start to increase, that's also another sign that the tumor could have recurred. So serum markers are used quite a lot in the staging of testicular cancers. So let's talk a little bit about radical inguinal orchidectomy because this is um, an operation that's listed in our curriculum. It's relatively straightforward if you have done open inguinal hernias because it's basically getting into the inguinal canal and then removing the testicle via an inguinal incision. And it's pretty easy because you take away the spermatic cord. So stitching everything back together again is pretty straightforward. In terms of the steps of the operation, um, you would position the patient like you would for an open inguinal hernia, so supine on the operating table with both arms out. You would prep and drape, perform your incision like you would for an inguinal hernia, Um, but the urologist I talked to said that they would usually do uh, a little bit more of an oblique incision and extend it um, right down to the pubic tubercle. You lay open the skin and dissect through the subcutaneous fat, being mindful of the superficial veins and tying these if you encounter them, and dissect down onto the external oblique aponeurosis. 
identifying the um, superficial ring and then opening the external oblique aponeurosis in the line of its fibers, first with a scalpel and then extending the incision with a pair of Metz and Balm scissors, identifying and preserving the ilioinguinal nerve. The first step is then to ligate the cord with a vicral tie or a clamp high at the deep ring. The idea being you should do this before you manipulate the testes to avoid spreading the tumor up the vessels of the lymphatics. And then you bluntly dissect the cord free and you use your index fingers to bluntly dissect down into the scrotum around the cord and around the testes. Um, And this is a relatively avascular plane. In order to deliver the testes, you place traction on the uh, cord and then put pressure on the scrotum to deliver the testes through the incision with its surrounding coverings. And the most inferior part of the testes is attached to the scrotum by the gubernaculum, which we talked a little bit about with the descent of the testes. And so you have to um, clamp and divide that with the ties. There may be little vessels in there. You then mobilize the cord all the way to the deep ring and you want to ligate that and divide it as high as possible at the deep ring and you can do this with a onovicral tie or other non-absorbable suture and it's good to leave a a suture on that so mark it with a non-absorbable suture in case the patient needs a subsequent retroperitoneal lymph node clearance because then that lets you know when you're coming from above what the um, extent of the dissection is. You can also leave this tie nice and long in case the cord does spring back into the abdominal cavity and starts bleeding. You can have something to tug on. You then just perform hemostasis and washout and you uh, close your layers like you would for an inguinal hernia. So a vicral to the external oblique aponeurosis um, all the way down to the pubic tubercle because you don't have to leave a uh, superficial ring. Um, And then you can do a subcutaneous fat stitch if you want and close the skin. So I'm only very briefly going to touch on treatment of testicular tumors because it looks, again, like I said, extremely complex and pretty variable depending on the subtype of the tumor and the degree of spread and the tumor markers. So I'm just going to do some very basics. So firstly, for germ cell tumors, we can start with seminomas. So the main sort of treatment modalities for seminomas are either surveillance after a radical inguinal orchidectomy, radiation therapy to the para-aortic lymph nodes and the ipsilateral iliac lymph nodes, which can be preventative or may be in response to uh, imaging changes or to high serum markers postoperatively. And can also involve chemotherapy. For early stage tumors, this might be something like one to two cycles of adjuvant carboplatin. And for stage 2C or 3 tumors, so higher grade, they may give something like etoposide and cisplatin. Moving on to the non-seminomatous germ cell tumors. So these are these much more aggressive ones. These are much less likely to undergo just surveillance postoperatively. Patients may undergo retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, which could even be prophylactically in high-risk patients without obvious nodal disease. And patients 
often undergo chemotherapy. And this is one of the situations where in metastatic disease, they may need to start the chemotherapy as an emergency um, because of the amount of disease. And I've seen this once with a guy with cannonball metastases. And they treat them with bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin. Bleomycin is an interesting chemotherapy and can cause significant lung toxicity, which is worsened with oxygen therapy. So it's an interesting chemotherapy to know about and that it's used in non-seminomatous germ cell tumors of the testes. Post-treatment, these patients will undergo pretty intensive surveillance with, in the first year, visits every couple of months with serum markers and a chest X-ray and a CT abdomen and pelvis every four to six months. And then this gets stretched out the further they get away from their diagnosis and treatment. So I started with the tricky one, so you can all relax now. We're going to talk about some uh, more straightforward uh, topics in urology that general surgeons see a lot more frequently. So to start us off, let's talk about the varicocele. So varicoceles are an abnormal dilatation of the veins in the spermatic cord and around the testes, the pampiniform plexus. You might remember those veins are called. And it's thought to be due to incompetence of the valve of the testicular vein as a result of increased left renal vein pressure due to the nutcracker effect of compression of the left renal vein between the aorta and the superior mesenteric artery. If we remember our anatomy, we know that the left renal vein has to cross the aorta to get across to the IVC. It is much commonly, therefore, affecting the left testicle. So some things to know is that it's actually relatively common and 30 to 40% of men will have a small subclinical varicocele. It usually presents at puberty and gradually increases in size as the veins dilate. The presenting complaint the patients may come to you with is an ache whilst standing or straining and it's often relieved when they lie down at the end of the day. And the reason it's relevant clinically is that it can be associated with testicular atrophy and reduced fertility. There is a varicocele grading system that grades varicoceles into 1, 2, and 3. Grade 1 are small varicoceles, which are palpable only with a Valsalva maneuver. Grade 2 is a moderate varicocele, which isn't visible on inspection but is palpable on standing. And grade three is a large varicocele, which is visible on gross inspection. And a grade three varicocele is often described as the bag of worms. And I would recommend you look up a clinical image of that so that you can recognize it if it comes up in the exam. In terms of workup, a scrotal ultrasound is usually a first step, and this is useful to look for the diagnosis as well as some of the complications of the condition such as testicular atrophy. If there is a right-sided hydrocele or it's bilateral, then you need to make sure you think about other potential causes such as IVC obstruction with renal cancers and these need further imaging, um, so abdominal injuring, imaging like an ultrasound of the kidneys or a CT scan is mandatory in right-sided or bilateral varicoceles. In terms of treatment or management, majority of patients don't need any treatment. 
Conservative management includes scrotal support and simple analgesia. And one of the urologists I talked to suggested doing a second yearly sperm count to monitor for infertility. If there is a reduction in sperm function or count or there's evidence of testicular atrophy, then there's two options for interventional treatment. The first is percutaneous venous embolization. And again, the urologist I talked to said this is first, second and third line. Um, So you would always start with this. And then there is an option to surgically ligate the testicular vein with an operation as well. The prognosis is really good with these treatments. Patients often get improvement of their symptoms and they can also improve sperm count and fertility. In terms of the operation itself to ligate the testicular veins, this is also done via an inguinal approach. So again, just like a inguinal hernia, you dissect down to the external oblique and open it. You identify the cord and you isolate the veins from the other cord structures And the plan is to ligate and transect the veins at the deep inguinal ring. So the next topic we're going to talk about is hydrocele's. So a hydrocele is an abnormal collection of fluid within the tunica vaginalis. So remember when we were talking about the anatomy, the tunica vaginalis surrounds the testes. The testes itself, the white layer of the actual testicle, is the tunica albuginea. So the fluid's collecting between the testes and the tunica vaginalis. It can be classified as congenital or acquired. In terms of the congenital types of hydrocele, this relates to the processus vaginalis. If we remember when we talked about the descent of the testes, the processus vaginalis is a projection of the peritoneal cavity that travels down through the deep inguinal ring, out the superficial ring and into the scrotum with the testes itself. And the processus vaginalis is what becomes the tunica vaginalis around the testes. So usually that space would close off once the descent has completed and you just get a cord remnant of this. But if some or all of it is left patent, then you can get different types of hydrocele's. So the congenital hydrocele is when the whole processus vaginalis remains completely open and there's free communication between the peritoneal cavity through the processus vaginalis all the way down to the testes. The funicular type, which is the most common, is where the proximal part of the processus vaginalis stays open. So from the deep inguinal ring down into or along the um, spermatic cord, but that the distal part down and around the testes is closed off. The next type is the non-communicating or insisted type. And this is where, say, the middle part of the processus vaginalis doesn't close off, but the proximal and the distal part do. So that's why you could think of it as like a cyst along the tract of the processus vaginalis. And then the last type is the um, vaginal. So this is where the very last part of the processus vaginalis or the tunica vaginalis area around the testes is um, patent. And this is basically a hydrocele in a way because it's just around the testes. In terms of the acquired types, these can be considered primary or secondary. 
So a primary hydrocele is where you get a collection of fluid around the testes and there's no obvious other cause, and this often happens in elderly men. A secondary hydrocele is um, commonly in the 20 and 40-year-old group, and this is usually secondary to another pathology, such as trauma, infection like epididymoarchitis, testicular cancers, testicular torsion, or lymphatic obstruction. So in terms of how a hydrocele might present, it usually presents as a painless swelling in the scrotum. The idiopathic or the sort of primary acquired types usually arise over a long period of time and slowly increase in size. And they're usually asymptomatic, despite the fact that they can be very, very large. As the hydrocele increases in size, it may start to cause some disability for the patient or maybe some symptoms such as a dragging symptom or some pain. A hydrocele is obviously a fluid-filled sac around the testes, and this is where transillumination comes in handy. So unlike a solid testicular tumour, for example, that won't transilluminate, you will be able to transilluminate a hydrocele. You should also be able to palpate the cord above it if it is um, one of the acquired types and not a congenital hydrocele where there's fluid the whole way down the processus vaginalis. And in a tense hydrocele, you may not be able to palpate the testes. An ultrasound is extremely useful in the workup of a hydrocele because it will diagnose a hydrocele. It will also show that the hydrocele is avascular and it can rule out other pathologies such as a testicular tumour or epididymoarchitis as a cause. I should mention if this is a secondary cause from trauma or from an infection, then the patient definitely will have pain and symptoms associated with the underlying etiology. The other differential for a hydrocele is an epididymal cyst, and a ultrasound is handy to differentiate between these two pathologies as well. In terms of management of a hydrocele, most hydrocele's are managed conservatively because they are a completely benign pathology and usually totally asymptomatic. The things that you have to do are firstly to establish the diagnosis, which you can do with a good examination, history, and an ultrasound, to rule out other potential causes, specifically testicular cancer, but also other infections or inflammatory conditions. Surgical treatment is used only if patients are symptomatic Um, with pain or pressure or a dragging symptom, and rarely if the scrotal skin integrity is compromised. The procedures or operative approaches that we have for hydrocele's are two. So we can do the Jabalay procedure or a Lord's procedure. I think the choice of which one you do is really up to surgeon preference. And overall, for both of these procedures, the recurrence rates are around 10%, and usually it happens early. There are other minimally invasive options, such as aspiration of the fluid and injection of sclerosing agents, but these do have high recurrence rates and may make surgery more difficult, Um, so usually are reserved for patients who aren't fit for an anaesthetic. So let's talk a little bit about a Jabalay's procedure. So these patients are operated on in the supine position under a general anaesthetic, usually with both arms out. An incision is made over the anterior surface of the scrotum, usually in the midline raffae, and 
a dissection is done down through the skin, the datos and the thin layer of cremasteric fascia, which are all reflected backwards from the underlying tunica vaginalis. A useful thing to do is to sort of put the skin on tension um, while you're doing this, which helps you see as you cut through the layers. Once you get down to the tunica vaginalis, this needs to be totally mobilized from the overlying layers, and this is usually achieved with blunt dissection. Once the tunica vaginalis is freed from the uh, external layers and incision is made in it, this is usually done with a blade and all of the fluid suctioned, and then a finger is used to lift the tunica vaginalis off the underlying testicle, and the incision is extended with scissors taking care not to injure the testicular vessels, the epididymis or the ductus deferens. The jabalay procedure is then performed by excising most of the sac and then inverting the sac and tying them together behind the spermatic cord. So if you imagine a balloon, you cut onto the balloon and then you flip the edges of the balloon around backwards to um, tie them together behind the testes. Um, and you can use something like a 2 vicral to achieve this. A Lord's procedure is quite similar, except that you use a smaller incision and you don't deliver the hydrocele, so you don't mobilize the hydrocele from the overlying layers. Instead, you incise into the hydrocele, suck all of the fluid out, and then you plicate the sac with interrupted absorbable sutures to gather the tunica together taking really small bites and working down towards the testes. And you leave these sutures long and then when you tie them down, it sort of plicates the sac together. For both a jabalaise and a Lord's procedure, you then close the scrotal skin. You do this in layers. You want to close the datos muscle layer with large continuous bites of an absorbable suture because this is a hemostatic suture. And then you close the skin. And our last topic for today is the epididymal cyst. Epididymal cysts are essentially cystic dilatations of the tubules of the efferent ductules in the head of the epididymis. The differentiation between an epididymal cyst and a spermatocele is mainly size. So epididymal cysts are more than 2 centimetres and spermatoceles are less than 2 centimetres. They're usually seen in men more than 40 years old, and they're typically multiple. They're thought to be lymphatic in origin due to blockage of epididymal ducts, and they can be idiopathic or secondary to infectious or inflammatory processes. Some of the differentials you might have to think about for a scrotal cyst, we've already talked about today, so a testicular tumour. Um, tunica vaginalis cyst, so a hydrocele, a abscess, a varicocele, and also an inguinal hernia. In terms of the examination findings, you can usually palpate an epididymal cyst in the head of the epididymis, and so the testes will be separate from this and you'll be able to feel the cord above it. It's always located superior to the testes and you can palpate it separately to the testes, as I said, and this usually differentiates it from a hydrocele. It does also transilluminate given it is a cyst. Imaging, once again, an ultrasound is extremely helpful if the examination is equivocal and you'll see well-defined anechoic lesions um, in the epididymis. 
management is usually conservative, especially in younger men, as surgery can actually disrupt the sperm transport and reduce fertility. Indications for surgery is if it's very large and causing pain, but it's important to let patients know that there's usually multiple cysts, so other cysts may increase in size and cause problems, and therefore any surgery is um, likely to be complicated by recurrence. And that completes this episode on all of these urology topics. Thanks for sticking with me and for listening to the podcast. If you're enjoying it, please leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe. It bumps me up the charts in Apple and helps other people find the podcast. And I really appreciate your support. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!